Well, happy Independence Day. If you're brand new with us, um, we just have been working through a book of the Bible, which is typically what we do. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now. In fact, we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. We started in Luke chapter 1 back last summer, last July, and we're kind of working our way through it. And so if you're looking for just an Independence Day kind of theme, probably not going to find that because we're just going to continue to walk through the Bible but that there are some things to talk about as it relates to Independence Day and how it fits into what we're going to talk about first. Um, it, obviously, you're aware, if you live in this area, that this is a pretty significant area as it relates to Independence. Uh, and go to Independence Hall, not too far away. We know about Benjamin Franklin. But what I wanted to make sure you understood, that this church, started in 1726, played a big role in those things. And the reason I want you to know about that is not to brag or think that our church is the best church in the whole world. Uh, our church has used flawed and broken humans throughout its history, just like God wants to continue to use flawed and broken humans today. And so um, there are 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, 56, the document where uh, uh, men decided that they would stake their lives on their declaration that they no longer would participate in the kingdom of Great Britain, but participate in the kingdom of the United States of America. And so there's this declaration that was written and then signed. It took several months to get all 56 signers to sign it. But three of those signers can have a very direct connection to this church. So Christian Life Centers founded in 1726 as the New London Presbyterian Church. Uh, our third pastor, our second pastor, installed pastor, Reverend Francis Allison, uh, decided to create a church, uh, to create a school in the 1700s, 1740-ish is about when it started. The dates run, run from 41 to 43, founded in what it's just usually communicated as 1743, and in that school, the New London Academy, there were uh, three signers of the Declaration of Independence. That is uh, George Reed, uh, James Smith, and Thomas McKean. Thomas McKean grew up in this church, was baptized in this church. This was his church. He was also the governor of Delaware and the governor of Pennsylvania, but that was just three of the kind of the, the first class that this church started in a school, and uh, that first class had 11 students in it. And this is what's crazy. This long later, you know, 270 years later, whatever the math is, there are still, uh, all 11 of them have their own Wikipedia page. Wikipedia page. So let me tell you why the school was started. I'm reading from a document called New London Presbyterian Church, a history. Uh, it was actually, this was a a thesis, a master's thesis done for a student by the University of Delaware named Earl Lightcap. Earl Lightcap, let me just read to you what it says. It says this, um, here, they talked about New London Academy. It was a place for thought. Here, our beloved church, you ready for this? Trained up her sons to battle for the rights of their country and the truths of their God. But where are they now? This was written in the 1860s by Reverend Du Bois. All gone, but not forgotten. Their names, their worthy deeds remain to stimulate the men of the present and the youth of the coming age. So let me read to you a little bit about these folks. Here's a few of the, the first class. Um, the following individuals attended New London Academy. That's Francis Allen, Allison Jr. He was a medical doctor. 
uh, senior surgeon in the Army of the American Revolution, John Bayard, a colonel in the American Revolution, a member of the Continental Congress, representing Pennsylvania, Matthew Brown, a member of the convention which framed the Pennsylvania State Constitution in 1776, Ephraim Blaine, personal friend of George Washington during the Revolution, a commissary general in the difficult days of Valley Forge, and ancestor of James G. Blaine, John Croc uh, Cochran, M.D., personal friend of General Washington and of General Lafayette, uh, first surgeon general of the Army of the Middle Department, Director General of the Hospitals of the United States, 14 additional famous men, you ready for these, attended this academy. They were John Ewing, the provost of the University of Pennsylvania, James Lotta, later one of the pastors at our church, uh, John Mackey, a member of the Constitutional Convention, Thomas McKean, signer of the Declaration of Independence for Delaware, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, Governor of the state from 1799 to 1808, Samuel McClay, a member of Congress, U.S. Senator James McLean, member of the Continental Congress, Robert McPherson, member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, David Ramsey, M.D., known as the father of American history, member of the Continental Congress from South Carolina, member of the South Carolina Legislature for 21 years, George Reed, signer of the Declaration of Independence, member of the Constitutional Convention, U.S. Senator from Delaware, James Smith, signer of the Declaration of Independence, member of Constitutional Convention, Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Continental Congress, Robert Whitehill, member of the Pennsylvania Assembly, U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania, member of the U.S. House of Representatives, Ebenezer Hazard, Postmaster General of the U.S., John Henry, U.S. Senator, Governor of Maryland, Colonel Alexander Martin, Governor of North Carolina, and Hugh Williamson, a delegate to the, uh, to the Constitutional Convention. All connected deeply to New London Presbyterian Church and New London Academy. This is a church that has weathered American Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War, and many other messy, messy situations in our nation. This is a church that's weathered all those things. 295 years later, still exists, not because the church was perfect, it was broken. Not because it doesn't have a sordid history, it has a broken one that includes slavery, right? We're actually in the middle right now of trying to figure out how do we share the history of our church while also own uh, some things that uh, we're not so proud of. For example, uh, Francis Allison. The reason he started the New London Academy, this is crazy, is because of this schism within the Presbyterian Church. You see this 24-year-old young buck named George Whitfield came over and started preaching the gospel. And hundreds and thousands of people became Christians. And there is this work that becomes the Great Awakening that the church was not able to explain. And because they couldn't explain that people like Francis Allison go... That is just foolery, and that's emotional, you know, drama, right? Same thing that I would have said, oh, that's weird, I can't explain it, no, let's, let's go to the Bible, everything's in the Bible, and there is this crazy work of the Spirit that was happening in the uh, mid-1700s, and Francis Allison was the leader of what was called the Old Schism, going, nope, we can't explain it, no, that can't be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way, and literally created a school, New London Academy, to train pastors not to be caught up in the emotion of the gospel. But guess what? It wasn't an emotion of the gospel. It was a work of the Holy Spirit. And finally, by 1758, he writes a letter and says, hey, we have no real evidence of the work being worked in our churches in this old schism. But when we look at the new schism, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in every place you look. 
And so in 1758, the Presbyterian Church finally joins forces, old side and new side, to work through the gospel empowered by the Spirit. So this, this school, New London Academy, which eventually, by the way, becomes uh, the University of Delaware, was literally started because it did not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. Now let's think about this. It did not believe in the work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, the Holy Spirit was at work in the school. Like, so crazy to think all these messy parts of our history and messy parts of even this school that was founded that finally comes to a place of repentance in 1758, 1760, and go, oh, yep, we missed it. The Spirit is at work. And they're like, yeah, of course it is. So you go back to this place. Go back to 1743. You read about all these folks who are being trained to not believe in any emotional part of the gospel that was all rooted just in the Scriptures, which is very good foundation, right? Because they couldn't explain that. And yet God was empowering these people to make really, really bold claims. And so the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the American church it isn't that we figured it all out. It isn't that we were without sin. But it was God and his great love and mercy who continued to pour out his spirit on folks who couldn't even recognize it. And I am convinced that is the story of my life. The work of the gospel, preaching the gospel, believing the gospel, and I'm convinced that God was so gracious and continued to work in my life. And I could not see what the spirit was doing. Now all of a sudden, the last year, God has just kind of like, you know, unveiled my eyes to these things, and I'm seeing it, and I'm experiencing it. And so hear me, I just want that for you. I want that for us. I just want us to own, hey, God, we've done most of our life. Maybe we've believed in you. We've believed in Jesus. We've prayed the prayer, asked you to give us fire insurance so we don't burn in hell someday in the future. But we have not seen your hand at work in our life, and we have not given you the credit you deserve. And so these guys, let me read to you, the reason that they were fighting the Revolutionary War. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Accordingly, we find that when the struggle of the Revolution commenced, they almost to a man espoused the American cause. Now listen to this. To them, the Declaration of Independence, the one that three people from this connection to this church signed of the 56. Find another place where you can find three people. And this is nuts what God has done in our church and in our community. Uh, uh, to them, the Declaration of Independence on the 4th of July was a declaration of religious as well as civil liberty. So these folks understood fully that what they were fighting for is not just the kingdom of the United States, but the kingdom of God and that ability to participate and declare his goodness. So as we think about that, and we work through this material today, um, uh, let me actually read one more thing. This is what it says. Uh, during uh, the war, uh, New London Presbyterian Church uh, was very conscious of its course, and the patriot spirit ran high amongst us, and we furnished to the government, faithful soldiers and officers for both the army and the navy. So, lots of stuff with this church, which is what I'm really thankful. Again, I told you I wasn't just going to spend some time on independence, but it really is helpful because we've been in this series called The Gospel of Luke, and he writes it, Luke, a, a medical doctor turned uh, investigative journalist, which is just beautiful because I just read to you about a bunch of MDs who are basically renaissance men. So you have this medical doctor, well-trained, understood stuff like the scientific method, you know, 
able to discern and learn and research, was hired by this guy named Theophilus. Theophilus was a rich, what we believe, Roman official, and he was hired Luke to go and investigate whether or not we could trust that Jesus was Lord. So Luke goes and listens to all the oral accounts, goes and sits with all the eyewitnesses and takes notes and then goes and reads all the written documents. And in Luke chapter 1 verse 4 it says, and he writes all these things so that you and I and the office can have certainty of the things we've been taught from Jesus. And so what Jesus teaches that it's so, so profound. It's not just, hey, pray a prayer, get fire insurance, one day you'll get into heaven. But Jesus, his primary subject, his primary talk was all about the kingdom of God. When you read his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it is all about how you can, you and I, can live in the kingdom of God. Jesus even says in Matthew chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So there is a primary focus, the kingdom kingdom of God. And so uh, Luke says, hey, I've done the research and I'm going to give you a presentation that would help you have certainty that the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of God is at hand. And so when Jesus shows up and starts speaking, when his cousin John the Baptist shows up and starts speaking, what they say over and over again is, repent for the kingdom of God is near or at hand. And that word repent means to finally change the way you think. And as you change the way you think, what will happen is your, your thoughts become your beliefs. And your beliefs become your actions. And your actions become basically your destiny. And so the whole idea is Jesus came to speak the kingdom of God into existence so that we could receive it and participate in it. And while you can agree or disagree on how we have gone to war and what that's been about, there were men who really believed that part of their participation in the kingdom of God was about uh, and, and, and the Revolutionary War is about ushering in the kingdom of God. And so that's a big, long history, a story of why we are reading the Gospel of Luke little by little, day by day. But what we've done is we've kind of taken the Gospel of Luke and put it in like little bitty, uh, almost digestible chunks. I mean, there's still a lot to digest. And so we've been in this uh, kind of sub-series called Better. And Better is all about making the right choice to continue to live in the kingdom of God. What was really neat before we started the series, we saw Jesus kind of wrap up the last series for us and claim that he was praying to God and he says, I rejoice because for your Holy Spirit has, you know, come, right? I rejoice in the Holy Spirit. So the really good news about this is you're not having to make decisions on your own. The Holy Spirit is actually going to empower you to make the right decision. Like he empowered, you know, Thomas McKean. Like he empowered George Reed. Like he empowered James Smith, right? He's going to do that for us. And so as we're faced with decisions, which you are, kind of the premise of the whole series is when life hands you choices, you get to choose better. And so we've been looking at his two choices every single week. And a couple of weeks back, we, or what we looked at last week was this idea that we, in the kingdom of God, getting to participate in the kingdom of God, and that's for all people, not just people who grew up in church. What we get to do is we get to decide whether or not we're going to receive or reject. And the big crescendo last week is what we're receiving or rejecting is the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus goes, hey, when you pray, pray, ask, seek, knock, and then he gives us some really cute parables about a persistent neighbor, even annoying one. And finally a neighbor goes, fine, if you'll shut up, I'll give you what you want. And then a, a father who he says, all of us as fathers are still broken and evil, right? That still give good gifts. And so he kind of wraps us up and says, hey, your heavenly father is a good father. He's not an annoyed neighbor. He likes it when you knock on this door. Ask seek, knock. And then he says, how much more when you ask 
Well, God give you his spirit. Right? And so one of the things that happened in the 1740s and 1750s, it was a don't ask, don't kind of environment about the Holy Spirit. Right? You, don't, you don't go seeking that weird stuff. And she's going, no, no, you do. You actually can ask for his spirit. Like right now, you can tune me out. You can bow your head or you can stay where you are and go, God, I just want your spirit. And guess what will happen? He says, how much more will he give his Holy Spirit to those who ask? Right? We have to ask. We should be asking. We should be seeking. We should be knocking. Because the kingdom of God is at hand and this Holy Spirit is the one who empowers it. So, saw that last week. So you either get to reject or receive it. That the, the beginning of living in the kingdom of God is actually getting the fuel to do the work of the kingdom. And that fuel, that empowerment, all comes to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not some impersonal power, though. It is a powerful person. It's the third part of the triune God that is available to you and I today. And that might just sound strange. And I go, sorry it sounds strange. But there's a lot of things that sound strange that are still true. Maybe we don't understand it, and I joke about this all the time. You don't understand your iPhone. You don't know all the inner workings of the hardware or the software behind the scenes. But you pick up that phone, and you go to your contacts, and you hit FaceTime, and you see your grandchildren, right? You, you send a text to a group, and it goes, right? Do you know exactly how all those things work? Nope, but it doesn't make it less true. Right? And so part of this is going, the reason I believe so deeply in this is not because I've finally understood it with my head. It's actually that I've experienced this with my heart. Right? There, it's like there was this lid on my life where I thought I had to understand everything and know everything and be able to explain everything. And somehow that lid kept me from actually experiencing God's love and grace and peace. I understood it, you know, theologically. I was able to preach it to you, but boy, it's in the scriptures. But somehow, it bypassed my heart and the experience to do it. Why? Because my brain, my need to know and control things, which is probably our greatest idol, was a lid for me actually receiving what God had for me. Lid for actually receiving what God has for you. And we go, I don't fully understand it. I'm like, here's the problem. It doesn't matter if you understand it. It still is true. And we're going to double down on that thing that we don't understand because we're going to continue to talk about this whole world that's happening outside of the material. Jesus says it through a writer of the New Testament. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. But there's this spiritual world. And usually when I come to these things, I go, oh no, I'm going to spend a lot of time explaining all these things. And God, I don't really know how to explain it. And honestly, I just felt like he gave me permission to go, Josh, this isn't your time to explain it. This is your time to share it. And let me, through my spirit, do the work of making myself known. So we're just going to read through the scriptures in a really, really awkward, weird clump. And today, you get a new choice. And there's only two choices here. Just want to let you know, there is no third choice. There are two choices. And in every moment, we are, caught, whether we under, are, are aware of this, are making the choice to do one of these two things. And it's going to seem really harsh at first, okay? But just, just hear me out. Just hear me out, okay? At the end, you can send me a comment. You can post on Facebook, never to listen to anything that comes out of my mouth, whatever that is. But just for now, could you, could you just kind of come with some curiosity and go, okay, Lord, is that true? And so here, here is what you get to choose today either, and we've talked about this, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Satan. In each and every decision you make, 
in every moment that you're walking, you're either participating in the kingdom of God or you're participating in the kingdom of Satan. You are doing the work of the enemy. And that sounds so harsh. And here's the good news, right? Even when we get it wrong, the Holy Spirit is still doing what he needs to do to bend and shape all things for our good and his glory. But it's not because we always get it right. There is two camps, kingdom of God and kingdom of Satan. And this is one of the things that Jesus is going to declare today. And so there is no middle or third option, right? Even I'm not so sure. I don't believe this. I'm just spiritual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the kingdom of Satan sounds so harsh. I know it sounds so harsh, but I just need you to hear out of Jesus' mouth this complicated truth. And what I certainly hope happens, that the Holy Spirit will come and land on you, speak to you, and you will choose this kingdom. I have chosen this kingdom, and I have not regretted a moment of it. And I promise you, I used to say on your first day in heaven, you won't regret living in the kingdom of God, but it's so much better than your first day in heaven out there. I promise you, your family and your kids and your job and your neighborhood will all be different if you will make this choice with the work of the Holy Spirit in you. Okay, kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Satan, you get to make the choice. And so Jesus has just said, how much more will you get the Holy Spirit if you ask? And this is the very next verse, Luke 11, verse 14. Now he, that was Jesus, was casting out a demon, okay? Already in the middle of it. So there is a world we don't see. There is a kingdom of Satan that is at work. There are demons and they hate you. Hear me? They hate you. They hate you. They want you to be miserable. They want you to be tormented. That is the goal of demons. And I understand if you're already a little uncomfortable with this because I can't quite explain it all other than go, could you look around us? So, even when we go back, let's go back to the Revolutionary War, or the War of 1812, or the Civil War. You know who's the one who actually creates war? Satan. Why? Because it steals, it kills, and it destroys. Right? And so, we had this weird relationship with war as Americans, because we feel like, ah, oh, I want to be a patriot, I want to be thankful for soldiers, and you should. And yet, we feel really, really uncomfortable with the, the death toll. Or maybe some of the means and methods, right? And so I just go, hey, this is a broken world and there is an enemy who hates you and hates your freedom. And so we have to figure out how to respond and navigate this enemy. And I'm not going to tell you exactly how. I'm not going to tell you where, you know, American soldiers and the wars fit into this. I'm just telling you, there is an enemy who hates you, wants to steal, kill, and destroy your freedom. And that's been since the day you were born. You entered this world with a target on your back. And I'm not trying to scare you, but at some point we have to speak honestly about this. There's an enemy who hates you, and there is a target. And so Jesus comes face to face with a man who has been living in torment. Torment's a little different than abuse. They both are terrible, but abuse is kind of like a one-time thing. It happens. The person gets arrested, goes away, and you now are dealing with the trauma of it, and there's lots of pain. But torment is this day in day out your abuser lives with you is your parent whatever it is and you experience it every single day and so this guy is living with the torment of his abuser being actually manifested in his body and so what this says is there is a demon that was mute really interesting the demon didn't speak right so there are a lot of demons that acknowledge a bunch of things but this wasn't one of them it was mute when the demon had gone out, 
the mute man spoke and people marveled. So, a lot happening in this one verse. Jesus comes face to face with the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus does something really, really easy. He speaks it out, which is so profound that the God of the universe just can speak that out of existence. He has all the power and all the authority. And so, kingdom of God, you know, collides with the kingdom of Satan. And we see who's victorious in this kingdom of God. And so we see that Satan, our demons are kind of cast out. Now, if you've been with us for any amount of time in the Gospel of Luke, we covered this a little bit more extensively than we will today in Luke chapter 8. A couple different things. Uh, there's this moment where Jesus, uh, it says that Mary Magdalene, who is one of the great women who are participating in the kingdom of God, along with Herod's uh, household manager's wife, really, really anything, and it says she had unclean spirits in her. It actually defines the amount of spirits, seven. And so it's interesting, the word unclean spirit, we're going to see it pop up again. And the word Holy Spirit, they had the same word for spirit, pneuma. So this, uh, that, that word literally means breath, right? In the Old Testament, it shows up kind of like as a gale force wind. And so we can go all the way back to the beginning when God had Adam laying on the ground and he had no life. And the way that God brought life into the world is he breathed his breath into Adam, and Adam is resurrected. Uh, in, in the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Ezekiel who sees this, this army that's just been defeated, and they're dead, dead, dry, broken bones. That's what we just sang about in the grave to gardens. And God gave Ezekiel this, this vision of God breathing his spirit into those bones, and they come back to life. They become the soldiers of the kingdom of God, right? They see a picture of that. In the New Testament, uh, you know, God created marriage, God created family, God created nations, and they were all really, really broken and messed up. And then God in the New Testament sends Jesus to make everything uh, sad become untrue, to make everything broken, mended. And Jesus comes and shows up, but the way by which he sets up the world to actually be mended is actually through the church. So God created family, or marriage and family. Those get broken real early in the gospel, I mean in Genesis. Then God uh, created nations, and boy were they broken, and the ones with power leveraged their power for their own pleasure at the expense of other people, right? You know what that's like. You've seen that happen. And all three of these institutions that God created are absolutely broken. So how does God fix it? He sends us a new institution. And it's the church. And the way by which the church begins to do its work, you, Jesus says, wait, stay here until you receive my spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And then you'll meet my witnesses in all the places. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. He tells us in that day they'll pour out his spirit, quoting Joel. And then you see this moment at Pentecost where they are worshiping. And all of a sudden, this, this force, like a mighty rushing wind with flame and tongues comes into the place. And it indwells them as the church. God breathes life into the church, right? And so you see this, this moment of spirit over and over again, but that spirit is uh, described as a holy spirit, a spirit set apart for his church, for you and I. And in that same spirit, same word, there's another kind of adjective that shows up in front of it, evil. Evil spirit, right? An evil breath that breathes death 
into people, into institutions, into families, into nations, right? And so at war is these, this perfect Holy Spirit and this enemy with his minions, which aren't the same strength as Jesus. We see that. He literally just speaks to it, and it goes out. So we see that Mary Magdalene is, uh, was filled with seven unclean spirits. And then in Luke chapter 8, we encounter another story. And I'm going to remind you of the story, and I'm going to share something to you that I might sound offensive, okay? But I just want you to receive it. This is not a gotcha statement. This isn't the part of the sermon you clip and then send it to your friends and go, ha ha, here it is. But it is something to consider. Jesus shows up um, and interacts with what we call the uh, Gerasene or Gerasene um, demoniac. And you know it. This is a guy in chains. This is where Jesus is going to cast out the spirits. And they are going to uh, be put in the pigs and run off a cliff. It's a, it's a crazy story. Jesus is then going to get kicked out of Decapolis. He'll come back in a little while and feed 4,000 men plus their families. And so it ends well. But in this moment, he interacts. And Jesus and this man have this conversation. And this man tells Jesus his name. And he says, we are legion. See this? One human in torment who gives us his pronouns. We. So when you look at the world right now and all the complications, you go, where do we get from a he and she and, a, and all these new pronouns? And look, I'm not, I, this is not a gotcha statement. Just a thing to consider. I just would go, this isn't the first time we've seen plural pronouns. There was a they and a them 2,000 years ago. Jesus interacts with a man who is tormented and broken and his brain is being destroyed. Real torment. And when Jesus interacts, they tell Jesus their pronouns. And they're accurate. They and them is who was in that man. So, as you wrestle with the complications of transgenderism and all the pain and sorrow that comes with it and the confusion, I would just say what we know to be true is that there are folks who look in the mirror and they are in torment. They are divided. And that's why this isn't a gotcha statement. This is the same way that Jesus interacts with a, with a, a, a demoniac and speaks life into it. And so we got to wrestle with how do we have the same compassion that Jesus has and yet maybe look at our world a little different in terms of torment. And what some of you are going to hear is, see, Josh says that they're broken and messy and that's what's going on. Yes, they are broken and messy. Just like you are. Just like you are. Just as broken. And there's no idea what your torment is that we got to get it out. But there is torment. And so we just have seen torment with the enemy before. And I just would offer you a consideration is what we're facing in 2021 some real clear pictures of what that torment is so what does those pronouns look like i don't know but i'll tell you 2000 years ago that legion had a very clear reason why he used those pronouns and that reason was there is torment literal torment and the only solution to that torment was actually jesus speaking life and dispelling death through the holy spirit so we want to solve some of these things. It's not with cute gotcha statements or big posts on Facebook and debates. We, we resolve this through His Spirit living and being active in our world. How does His Spirit live and breathe in our world? It's really simple. It's through the ones that He possesses. 
right? Through his spirit being in us. And so Jesus comes face to face with this man who is, uh, had a demon go out of him. And the mute man spoke. And everybody's like, well, there's some real evidence there because that man's never spoke. Or I've never seen him speak. So there's real evidence of this change. And I just go, man, it's so hard to explain this, but I'll tell you, if you'll participate in it, there's real evidence of the change. If you've been joining us, for the last 18 months, and you've journeyed with me and my countenance, I certainly believe you would say, there is real evidence that something has changed. And I'll tell you, what has changed is the Holy Spirit has come and filled every part. I mean, the parts that are off limits, all those things. That's the reality of what's happening. So, so we go, okay, this Holy Spirit comes in, verse 15, but some, see this, but some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul. The prince of demons, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. This is so interesting. Jesus literally makes a mute man talk. And they're going, oh, we need, we need you to give us a sign. Right? Like, that's our world. Over and over again, we ask God to come through. Right? I tell you this all the time. You've prayed prayers about healthy kids. Then you got them. You're like, oh, I need another sign. Because I, I need you to make my kids more quiet. I'm like, no, no, you prayed for healthy kids. Let's celebrate it, right? You complain about your messy house. Do you remember when you prayed to be able to get to settlement on that house? Right? You complain about your job. Do you remember when you prayed for God to bring you a job? You get the job and you go, no, I need a new sign. So there's some that need a new sign. Now others had already had some, what I'd argue is contempt, some prejudice and prejudging on their behalf they look and go in there uh, they go ah no 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 that's got to be he if he has that power it's from the enemy if he has that power so what they are at least acknowledging is he has that power they just saw some evidence but then they're going ah it's not what you think it is right no 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 that's they that's a different thing that that the power came from that self-help book the power came from you know just him being in recovery no, the power came from the Spirit of the living God. And so they're looking at this, and they're going, ah, I don't think that's what it is. I don't think that's what it is. Um, are you sure that's what it is? And that word they say, Beelzebul, is actually uh, defined as the Lord of the Flies in Hebrew. So they would have known this. So think about this. The Lord of the Flies, another way to describe it, is the Lord of Dung. Right? The reason Lord of the Flies is because what do flies do? They fly and find the dirty and the filth. And then they go and they feed off of it. See this? They find the filth and the dung and they go and they, in the middle of that death and waste, they feed off of it. And so they're going, this guy, yeah, 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 maybe he has some power, but he has the power to go and feed off the broken. Right? And so Jesus speaks it. Now watch this. It's so, so interesting. Verse 17, it says this. But he, knowing their thoughts, right? They don't even speak this out loud. They're just thinking it. I love when this happens because as they are thinking it and Jesus kind of calls it out and goes, oh, okay, this is scary, right? But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. So they haven't said anything. They haven't said anything yet. They're just thinking it. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. One thing to think about here is how did Luke get this story? If they don't speak anything out loud, how does Luke get this story? He goes and sits with eyewitnesses. What's really easy to kind of infer here is he would have actually sat with those guys who were judging Jesus and thinking he was using evil spirits. 
right? So they had been like, hey, Luke, this is crazy. But yeah, the first time I encountered Jesus, there was this man who was mute. Jesus, uh, you know, made him speak, you know, cast out demons. And I thought for sure that he was evil and weird and strange. I want nothing to do with him. And then he looked at me and he said this, right? So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household falls, right? Abraham Lincoln quotes some of this. A house divided against itself can't, will, will, will fall, right? And so in this moment, what we see here is Jesus going, oh, you think this is evil spirits, but this is weird. That guy's already being tormented. So he's going to go, why would, if we're on the same team, because I work for Beelzebul, Satan, if, if that's the case, why would I actually give this guy some life? Because remember, I feed off his death. That's where my joy comes from. Why would I do that? And then he argues even more. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Like, how will that happen? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Oh, okay. So, and then he continues, says, therefore, they will be your judges. Hey, some of you, remember, some of you got some kinfolk who are participating in the kingdom of God and laying hands on people, and they are casting out demons. So you're saying that now that there's evidence of me casting out a demon, first let me just say, why in the world would I do that? Because why would I divide? We're trying to conquer, right? So we've already, we've already staked a claim on him. By the way, the word sin in its purest form literally means just to give up your rights of your property. Right? So you just have surrendered that. So in this mind, he's going, why in the world? If we've already taken property because they surrendered the property. Why in the world would we give that up? Right? That's division. Now, on top of that, you've actually seen some of this experience before because you've had people in your family, people in your synagogue, speak death out by bringing life in. So if this power comes from Beelzebub, what does that mean for your crew? Hey, I'll just let you make that decision, right? I'll let, therefore, why don't you ask them? If we have the same power, why don't you let them be your judges, right? So he just offers a couple of quick arguments, and then he gives something different. But, but, if it is by the finger of God, Jews would have understood this, the finger of God would have been this picture of God's work, God's providence of seeing all things and working all things in our lives by the finger of God that I cast all demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, you have just encountered this collision, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So let me just offer this. You might think I sound really strange. I understand. I feel like I sound strange. Even though I go, I can't quite explain it, but I'm telling you, I experience this indwelling, this infilling, this baptism of the Holy Spirit in my life, and I can't quite explain it, but I will tell you this. There came a road where I had to choose, do I want to fully lean into the kingdom of God, or do I just walk away? Not like walk away as in, you know, disown my faith, do those things, but just enough to go, hey, I'll just, I'll be a casual church attender. Right? Just a little bit, right? I had to make a decision. Am I all in or am I not? And so he's saying to these people in this moment, you have just encountered this strange moment that you can't explain. Let me tell you, you've just encountered a strange moment you might not be able to explain. I just told you that there's a kingdom of God, which would make a lot of sense because your soul longs for something that hasn't been fulfilled yet. And your soul was created to live eternally. And you know this. We know it deep down inside of us. And yet we don't know quite how to get there, right? So you've encountered what you've been looking for. 
either in kind of its first moment of finally surrendering, going, Jesus, your Lord, or for many of us going, well, I'm just going to go to church. I'm going to keep trying to perform it. Something is still off. And what's off is your performance cannot earn you the kingdom of God. Right? So, hard work, checklists, re- religions, let me just tell you where all that is. The kingdom of Satan. Religion belongs to the kingdom of Satan because religion is man's attempt to either get back to God. You have heard him and told that you better perform well, you better do well, you better say all the right things, you better read all the right things, right? And if you don't, God's mad at you. That's religion. That's performance-based. Or you've been told there is no God. The best thing you can do is just find your little kingdom and live in it to the fullest from birth to death and eat, drink, and be merry. And honestly, if there is no kingdom of God, that would make sense. But because there is a kingdom of God, when you come to encounter this, you have to make a choice now. Do you want to live based on your performance or live based on your pleasure? Or is it possible that your performance and pleasure will always leave you wanting because those things cannot be satisfied in your soul, but the kingdom of God, it can be with Jesus and the indwelling of the Spirit. So you have now come face to face with the same thing. Do you want to live in, participate, make the choice to walk in the kingdom of God? Why do you want to pretend like none of it exists? Hear me. Satan doesn't necessarily have to destroy you. He'd be just as happy just distracting you for your entire life. And if you stay distracted your whole life, you will end up with the same product of destruction. Right? And so you are faced with this. And he goes, if it's come upon you, but if it's come upon you, verse 21, watch what it says. And gives another analogy. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own place. Got it? Verse 21. Uh, guards his own place. His goods are safe. Got it? But when one stronger, then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor and which he trusted and divides the spoils. So he's going, hey, this works out well for most of you as long as you're really good at performance. Worked out really well for me when I was all about grading for my performance as long as I kept, you know, graduate first in the class, get a full scholarship for basketball, whatever those things are. All those things, as long as I can perform well enough, the religious route feels really good. But when you encounter something stronger than you, right? So he's going, look, for those of you who live in the performance strategy, as long as you're the strongest person in the room, it will work for you. But the minute you're not the strongest in the room, Watch what happens. Whoever, it says, and that person overcomes you. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Got it? Divides his spoil. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me. Hear me? Whoever is not with me is against me. I don't think there's a more clear picture to go. Either you're in or you're out. Whoever's not with me is against me. And I understand this is harsh. But, it, it, but I love you guys. And I just want you to experience what I've experienced. That's all I want. Whoever's not with me is against me. In other words, there is no third option. Or you can't kind of be with Jesus. Either you're with him or you're against him. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me Come into communion. Come into the fold. Scatters. So I just would say, do you feel really scattered right now? Does life feel really chaotic? Is there no place of peace in your life? I would argue, is your marriage in a mess? Are your finances in a mess? 
you're really struggling with addiction, I would argue it's because you haven't fully leaned in to the kingdom of God and gathered with him. And I've shared this with you before. There's real evidence that addiction, the, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, not being sober. The opposite of addiction is actually connection. It's just connection, right? Just think about it. Think about whatever that thing in your life that you were just consumed by, that you go to, that you run to. Where do you do it? In the dark by yourself. So, that the solution for recovery and sobriety is actually giving people they can lean in with for the long term, right? And so we see this, he goes, hey, whoever's not with me, you've got to lean in with me. You've got to connect with me. You've got to be connected. If you're not with me, then you will not gather, then you will scatter. And you will be alone in isolation and in pain. And this one says, verse 24, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will turn uh, uh, to my house from which I came. Verse 25, And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Verse 26, Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So he goes, here's kind of what's happened. Remember, I just told you, you, if you don't gather with me, if you don't live in the kingdom of God and continue to live in the kingdom of God, what happens is you get scattered. And you might get your house in order. And many of us have had this experience. We prayed the prayer. We had some supernatural moment. And some of you are wondering what happened because you believed in God. You were on fire, whatever that term you want to use is. And then slowly but surely, it just got... You just walk further and further and further away and that trajectory continues to get further and further from God. And she's going, look, if you don't live in the kingdom of God, and that's not just a once and done thing. If you don't live in the kingdom of God, eventually you will scatter. And he gives this illustration. He goes, hey, here's the deal. So when the evil one torments you, maybe even indwells you, and we speak that out, it goes away, and you are finally relieved, and you don't have those chains anymore, and you feel so free. But unless you lean in in that moment in the kingdom of God and invite something else in its place, what's going to end up happening is something else is going to dwell. So think about this way. We've been talking about the Revolutionary War. We know what it's like around here, and, you know, battle of Brandywine, messy stuff. And so let's just think about those battles. So battle, right in the middle of where people live, and soldiers have come up to battle. So there is a fight and a war. And they happen to stumble upon your house, which is just right there next to the battlefield. And as you stumble next to the house, right, they go, this is a lot more comfortable than a cot. This is a lot warmer than a tent. And so they decide to come. One of them just shows up and starts sleeping on your couch, eating your porridge, Right? All those kind of things. That was a, kind of a, th a nod to Goldilocks. And, you know, sleeping in your bed. And then all of a sudden you come in with some power and go, get out of here. This isn't your house. There's no way. I shouldn't have left the doors unlocked. I shouldn't have left the windows open. But you can't live here, right? And you kick the guy out and finally you get your house back. Finally things are good. But you don't shut the windows. You don't lock the door. You don't keep someone on guard. So what happened? week later, a month later, they just come right on back. Right? Get right back for you that same habit. They just come on back. And they go, this guy can't stop us. He's too weak. So they go and find their buddies. And they all come and live in the house. And they're just all in the house and enjoying the house. And the next thing you know, you are so overpowered. 
that you're in torment and weak and you don't even get to sleep in your own house anymore. You have surrendered the rights of your property. That's what sin is. Giving up what's properly yours. Giving up your deed to your residence of your soul, right? And so Jesus is going, look, here's the deal. You might have gotten clean for a second. You may have had this, you know, crazy experiential moment, emotional one, and then you just kind of walked away from it. The way that Francis Allison would be like, how in the world does these movements happen? I'm seeing these people pray these prayers and they become Christians. But then I get this, as George Whitfield goes back down the coast, I get to see them week in and week out. I get to see the kind of husbands they are, the kind of parents they are, right? Like, that couldn't have been a work of the Spirit. And Jesus is going, here, the work of the Spirit comes in and kicks everything out. But you got to lock the doors. you got to shut the windows. You need to invite the guard in to protect you and to lead you and to guide you. This, God didn't show up just to give you a nice little clean house for you to enjoy by yourself. He, gave, he kicked everyone out, out because he wants to take permanent residence. And you, so Jesus goes, look, you've got one or two options. You can live in the kingdom, invite the Holy Spirit to come guide you, to indwell you and stay with you, and you walk with the Spirit day in and day out, as Galatians says, right? And you continue to walk, or what happens is you think Jesus is your fire insurance. You just had that one and done, high five, you walked down the aisle, prayed the prayer, got the Bible, and that was just the end of it. He's going, the reason you're still in torment is because you haven't actually allowed the Holy Spirit to take up full residence in your house and you continue to crack those doors. Look at those websites. Drink that bottle. Say those things. Believe those things. Right? These things that just continue to happen. And he said, as he said these things, verse 23. I'm sorry, verse uh, 27. As he said these things, <laughs> a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. So much to think about here. One, he's going, uh, they're going, man, this is amazing teaching. This makes sense to me. This is why I'm so broken. This is why I live in torment. All that makes sense, right? And so a lady goes, uh, he said these things. The woman goes, ah, blessed are you. says that. By the way, this is pretty profound because women didn't speak out in public. So he doesn't rebuke her. She speaks out in public with this, you know, this, wow, your mom must be proud. Which is interesting to think about because Jesus is going to, you know, point in a different direction in terms of how they should respond. He's not rebuking. But one thing to think about is, you see what it says here? Blessed is the womb that bore you. This is why all this is possible. Because Jesus gave up his throne. He was in the kingdom of heaven. And he gets birthed onto this planet as a baby who nursed. Right? Why? To bring the kingdom of God with him. You see, everybody thought, oh, the kingdom of heaven's up there. There's no way to attain it. Let me do all the ladders, do all the rules. And the reality is, the gospel tells us that there is nothing you can do to earn that. So what do you do if the kingdom of God was out there and you can't get to it? It's only one option. The kingdom of God has to be brought to you. And it is. The kingdom of God is brought to us. Jesus brings the kingdom of God with us. Brings it with, or with him to us. And so we get to experience it because a God himself put the kingdom of heaven on his back. Brought it back into this world and says, it's here. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. But you have to make the choice in your mind to go, do you want the kingdom of God? Or do you want to live in whatever kingdom you've created, which at the end of the day, distills to the kingdom of Satan? And where that starts is in your mind. 
That's what repentance is, going, God, I believe the kingdom of God is here, and I am ready to live in it. Even when it doesn't feel like I'm in it, I am going to live in it. But he said, okay, that's really nice of you, lady. Uh, yeah, my mom's awesome. High five, Mary. You know, those kind of things, really, really neat. But he says, but he said, ooh, hear this, hear this. She says, your mom's so blessed. Your mom's so blessed. And he goes, let me tell you where the real blessing is. This is really helpful. Luke captures it for Theophilus and for us. It's about certainty of the things we've been taught. You want in on the kingdom of God. You want to experience the blessings of it. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's it. Hear the word of God. Allow it to come into your life and keep it. Remember, I've been telling you over and over again, the way that the kingdom gets ushered in is first you hear about it. Then you think about it. And then you speak about it, right? So whoever confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and can be saved, right? You speak about it. As you speak about it, you bring about it. So here's the weird thing I can't quite explain, but I know it to be true. This stuff was happening in my life as far back as over a year ago now. But I didn't know what it was. And I've always been really kind of creeped out by the people who, you know, take people on emotional roller coasters every single week, right? In my Baptist world, the way that you defined a good sermon or a good service is this. There wasn't a dry eye in the room, right? So you conjure up emotion. And I'm like, I can tell you about a kid with leukemia and you'll cry. But does that mean the kingdom of God has actually been presented? So I've been real cautious going, man, I don't know exactly what this is, but boy, is it real. Boy, is it real. And then, you know, into November and December, and finally I started to actually declare this as the real truth of what's happened in my life. And you've heard me talk about it over and over again. And what here's so strange, I can't explain the formula. So please don't listen to this as formulaic because these are the two things you do or three things you do. But as I've started to declare the goodness of God and his Holy Spirit at work in my life, it has become more real and more active and he has become more clear in those things. So the Holy Spirit's been at work. And yet, when we read the scriptures, you go, blessed are those who read the law and keep it. There comes a moment where you've got to start speaking this stuff out loud. The power of life and death is in the tongue. Remember, Satan wants the king of dung. Our Lord of dung wants to go and live in that death. That's where he feeds. And some of the death has come straight of our mouths into other people. And so there's an option that we can read God's word and start to speak it. Read God's word and start making declarations about it. If you'll join me on Tuesday, I will share with you the declarations page that I've been working on and using to start speaking this truth into my life. So join me for overtime, right? And we'll post it, all those things. So you can see these things. So at some point, we've got to start hearing God's word and speaking it as it's actually true in our lives. So Jesus goes, here's kind of the thing, right? Like the thing is, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Okay, a lot of message, a lot of material. The choice is yours. You get to decide whether you want to live in the kingdom of God or not. You have to decide that. You want to live in it or not. There are only two options. There's no middle ground. You get to decide with the help of the Holy Spirit. And if you have any, any urging in your soul and spirit right now, you go, I think I just want to plant myself in the kingdom of God. I will tell you, you cannot come to that conclusion by yourself. 
In Corinthians, it actually tells us that even if we can say Jesus is Lord, that is not because you were capable of saying it. It's because the Holy Spirit has come and made himself available to you for you to be able to say those words. So I just would offer you, if you are almost there, going, oh, I just want to say Jesus is Lord. I actually want to plant myself in the kingdom of God. I will tell you, that is the first evidence of the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. First evidence. So I just say, don't put a lid on it. Don't shut it. Right? And so what I want us to kind of conclude here is this passage that Jesus says to a church that he loved, the church at Laodicea. Remember? Now he gives us the church to kind of be the kingdom of God bearers. The ones who bring it. Right? The bringers of the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of churches that got really excited. A lot of people that got really excited. And what happened is as Jesus died and, you know, was resurrected, there was all this excitement. But then Jesus goes into heaven. They're going, well, what does that mean for us? What happens is a lot of people just got complacent, got really focused on just the here and now and what's important to them, and they started slowly migrating back. They wouldn't have called this, but the kingdom of Satan. So Jesus' little buddy John, who has always lived in the kingdom of God and declared it, they didn't like John, but the problem is they had killed a lot of other apostles who even on their death are going, Jesus is Lord. Nothing's worth our allegiance. We are not going to participate in this kingdom because we have found and tasted this kingdom, right? And so every time one of these guys would get brutally murdered, guess what happened? People would be so infused by their faith, and they go, that's my guy, because he worships the same Jesus. I'm going to live with that kind of boldness. And so every death led to more and more of an explosion of the church. So then they get to John, who is the youngest of kind of the disciples, and John keeps making these declarations. The people come together, and they go, I don't know how to shut him up, but we can't kill him. Just look what happened when we killed Peter. Look what happened when we killed James. Like, look at what happened. We, we can't just kill him. So what they do is they send him to this island by himself, Patmos. They, he literally gets exiled. And they think finally we'll contain him. But when he's on this island, guess who comes and visits him? Jesus. Right? Nothing can contain Jesus. So Jesus shows up, ushers in his spirit, and gives John these letters. They go, hey, you got to get my, my church, the ones I died for, the ones that I want to bless. you got to get them back focused and on task. And so he gives these letters. And one of them was to a church called Laodicea, which Jesus loved. But he's going to discipline and rebuke because he loves them. Because he wants them to live in the kingdom of heaven and doesn't want to be tormented by the kingdom of Satan. Watch what it says. Revelation 3, verse 15. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold, right? You're kind of in this middle ground, but there is no middle ground. That's what it says. Would you that, would that you were either cold or hot? So... Because you're lukewarm, because you're straddling the fence, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now he's making a, a very simple analogy about what tastes good and what doesn't. He goes, this, if you don't want to live in the kingdom of God, then I will scatter you, spit you out. For you say, I'm rich. I've prospered and I need nothing, right? Know that culture, don't we? Need nothing, right? Now realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You don't even, naked, sorry, that's my southern. Uh, uh, you don't even realize you're living in the kingdom of Satan. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. We can cover a little bit more of what Jesus is saying here on Tuesday. Those whom I love, so important, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Is it possible that you've been living in their own kingdom? If so, be bold and repent. Acknowledge it. This is what he says. This is so interesting. Behold, 
I stand at the door and knock. Remember the house analogy? This is what's so interesting and so complicated about Jesus. Jesus is a respecter of boundaries. Satan is not. You see this? Jesus is not going to force himself on you. He's just not. He's a respecter of boundaries. He literally is standing at the door that could very well be occupied by the enemy. And he goes, and I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. I don't, it's not locked, I get that, but I stand at the door and knock. There's a door between you and him. There's a door between you and the kingdom of God. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, Holy Spirit, I certainly hope has challenged you in this. Open the door. I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. You went on the kingdom, you just open the door. You let the Holy Spirit and Jesus come and invade every part of your life. And you will eat with him. You will have communion with him. You'll literally be able to taste and see that he's good. And he says, it's the one who conquers. I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's going, look, here's the deal. You want to conquer? You want to see a victory? It's really pretty simple. You invite the kingdom of God into every part of your life. So how do we do that? How do we actually invite Jesus into our life? What's so beautiful, in this moment, we'll actually be able to tangibly do that. You can tangibly invite Jesus into your life. Now, it'll be metaphorically, but what's going to happen is Pastor Gary's going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion where Jesus tells us to, to, to taste him, to see him, to invite him in. So I can't explain to you exactly what's happening in this moment, but it's more than an object lesson. You hear me? don't want to quite use the word mystical because it will get confusing, but there is something supernatural. There is something transcendent that happens when we gather together with Jesus and invite him in. So I double dog Darian to take this moment serious and invite Jesus in. He's going to be offered to you. He stands at the door knocking. Would you just invite him in to every part of your life? So Gary, would you lead us in communion together as a church family? I'd be glad to. I'll take that table. So thank you. All right. So when we do actually open our lives to, to Christ and allow God to come in, then one of the things that God does is God does come in and does begin to work in us. And so today, actually, as we think about communion and think about God's love for us, where we actually get a chance to realize that God is here with us, working in us, um, walking with us, and with us all the time. So today, um, as we empty ourselves, we actually create space for God to come in and for God to inhabit us and be with us in the midst of that. And so when we take communion, one of the things we're actually doing is tangibly bringing Jesus in, um, inviting him into our life in a way that we get to understand God's love and care for us. So I'd invite you today to, um, to do that. You've got your cups, and um, we're going to open these carefully because uh, it gets a little tricky sometimes. But Luke um, says something interesting. He says that um, uh, in his gospel, he writes that Jesus was eagerly looking forward to a time to, to have this dinner, this supper with his disciples. In fact, he uses an interesting idiom there because he says that it was sort of like he was longing and waiting and hoping that this would happen. And, um, and what that is, again, is that invitation that Jesus was bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the world and that we're all invited to be a part of that. So today as we take communion together, remember that. It's, it's a reminder um, that we believe that Christ is who he said he is, that he is our Lord, 
Um, it's a reminder that he did die, and we believe that he rose again, and that he lives triumphant, and that he's invited us to be a part of his life. And in that, we find our lives as well. So I want you to remember the story. Um, it's a story in which we, we re are reminded of who God is, but we're also reminded of who we are. And so it was on the night that he was betrayed that our Lord Jesus took bread and he gave thanks for it. And he, um, as he gave thanks, he reminded them that it was his body for them and invited them uh, to eat it together. So let's together eat the bread. And then in the same way, after they'd eaten the bread together, he took a cup and he gave thanks and blessed it, gave thanks to God for it. And he said, this is the cup that's the new covenant that's poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and let's drink this together. Let's pray. So God, we are so grateful I'm grateful for your love, your forgiveness, your peace. Grateful that you are with us and that you walk with us. And we pray, God, today that, um, that as we have taken the time to, uh, to be in this meal with you, that you would bless us and guide us and just continue to work through us. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come to full fruition in all of our lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Jesus, 
with me, church. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. Oh. You take what the enemy meant for evil, and you turn it for good. You turn it for good. like I was just down there with you all. Um, so, things to think about. We invite Jesus' spirit into our life, but how do we keep our house clean, right? Well, it's choosing every single day, declaring every single day that you're living in the kingdom of God and that Jesus has full reign in your life and you speak the Holy Spirit over you and over the people around you. But the other thing, is I told you, Jesus gave his church filled with his spirit which I believe was probably one of the things that that uh, colonial time, Revolutionary War uh, soldiers had. They had the Holy Spirit and they had a community of people. Let me read to you real quick from a historian who wrote this in 1944 about what our church would have been like or what it was like in, in uh, the 1750s, 60s, 70s, uh, 80s. The services were long <laughs> and would be regarded today as an endurance test, but they were submitted to with cheerful patience. So thank you. They commonly began at 10 o'clock or soon thereafter as the congregation had assembled and lasted well into the afternoon. They brought a sandwich. The day's programs consisted of two sermons, hymns, and prayers with a recess of about half an hour during which the people ate lunch they had brought with them. Dinner was eaten on the ground and the grown-ups discussed among themselves matters of common interest while youths and maidens wandered off to the nearby spring to enjoy each other's society in the recess of the dinner hour between sermons. And listen to this. At the expiration of the recess, the congregation reassembled for the afternoon service. There was never any hurry about anything. They had to come, they had come to make a day of it and there was plenty of time. 
the sermons were long, amen, praise Jesus, as they were expected to be, often taking an hour and a half for delivery. The congregation had come a long way to attend services and would have felt cheated if they were abbreviated. Didn't want you to feel cheated today. Uh, long prayers were offered up by the elders and long hymns or psalms were sung by the congregation. These with the sermon ordinarily consumed two hours or more at each service. Now listen to this. The church served as well as the religious, uh, the social as well as the religious needs of the people. So my challenge for you is to lean in, have the Holy Spirit empower you, and you go and serve the social and religious or Christian, godly, spirit-filled needs of the people. So let me pray over you and you'll be dismissed. Holy Spirit, you are a great gift, the best gift. Jesus, you are the best Savior. God, you're the perfect Father. May we walk in the community of you, the triune God. May you empower us with your life and your joy and your peace and your goodness and your patience and your gentleness. And God, may we be image bearers, grace deliverers, and mercy extenders this week in our life. Through you, as we invite you into every part of our house, as you make our house your house again. And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Love you all. Be blessed. And we'll see you next week. I'm gonna see a victory.
child.